Okay, so when the credit companies pulled back, Skybus lost its flow of capital. What was happening with oil? The oil was going for about $50 to $60 when we started the airline, and we did stress tests up to $90. We could make money at $96, but we couldn't make money at $127, $137, $147, and it just kept going up. No airline could make money at that price. From Luxmundi, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Huang, and on today's show, Ken Guile shares about how at the age of 56, he left his comfortable job at Southwest to start a domestic airline called Skybus. He then went on to become employee number two at Fly Dubai, a Middle Eastern airline, which went on to become one of the fastest growing airlines in the world. Ken opens up about the roller coaster career he had and how his faith and family played a major part in his decision making. Okay, before we get into this episode, I want to talk about how decision making can be difficult, especially in situations outside of your control. Take, for example, the 2008 financial crisis. Companies were laying off staff and hiring had stopped. If you had just graduated, you may have had to take a job that wasn't your first choice, or even considered going back to school. If you were already working, your career growth may have slowed, or you are one of those laid off. As you will hear, Ken wasn't in the best situations at work either. He tried starting an airline right before the financial crisis hit, and was later diagnosed with stage four cancer while he was chief operating officer, COO at Fly Dubai. But in every decision, since he graduated college, he purposely followed an approach that involved rational thinking, prayer, and counsel. For now, here's what you need to know. Ken grew up in the Midwest in the 1950s, at a time when commercial aviation was still taking off. He was raised in a big family and a very caring community. We grew up right on the Oklahoma, Kansas line. Now, I had a very large family. I have uh, lived close by uh, 42 first cousins. Um, we could play baseball and have two teams and subs, so it was a lot of fun. What kind of kid were you growing up? Were you the adventurous type? Yes. And I'd be out doing things and always kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit. And a lot of times, if there was something going on that could be a little bit kind of rascally, I was involved in that throwing water balloons at cars on Main Street, tricks in high school, that type of thing. But nothing mean, but but very jovial, I guess you'd say. Was there a time when you knew you wanted to be a pilot? Oh, sure. I remember that like it was yesterday. I was a second grade, eight years old, and some jets, F-86s in formation went over. I ran in the window and looked and watched them, and Mrs. Helsel, my teacher, she said, kept on, Kenneth, sit down, Kenneth, sit down, and I wouldn't. Till they, till they disappeared. And then we went to music class next. And Mrs. Kilmer, the, the music teacher, she asked us, hey, what do you want to be in as you grow up? She went around the room. She got to me, and I said, jet pilot. Unlike Ken, not everyone ends up being what they want to do when they grow up. What's interesting is Ken grew up in the 1950s and 60s when flying wasn't common and neither was being a pilot. 
But Ken did what he could to be exposed to and inspired by a rapidly changing and growing industry. When Di and I were in college, we went to one of the local airports. At that time, it was a DC-3 landed. The pilot put his hand out the window to wave one finger and two fingers to start engine one and two. You could walk to the plane and then the blue puff of smoke when it started and it was unpressurized. And I'd go watch planes take off and land and Diane would go with me when we were dating. Yeah, so sometimes our dates would be around airports. So what happened when you pursued being a pilot? I guess I probably faced a little bit of what I called reality check. You begin to look and you look at becoming a pilot. And at that time, I didn't know any. All I heard was how tough it was. And how you had to be perfect health and perfect eyes and, you know, math major, blah, blah, all this. So, you know, if you're not careful, you can talk yourself into the doubts. But also, I was concerned about not being able to get in because of eyes or something. And so I went to uh, college with a lot of emphasis on law. And my idea was to go to law school. Ken wanted to make sure he had options when he graduated. So he applied to the Air Force to become a pilot and also applied to law school. He ended up getting accepted to both. And what was next, Ken didn't take lightly. He went thinking through this career decision involving his family and faith. Between my sophomore and junior, Ian and I decided that we liked each other, but we didn't like living apart, so we got married. So from then on, it was together as we did these things. And so all major decisions we learned early in life to commit them to a pro-con list and also to a strong prayer list and try to project where you'd be with this position going forward and how it would affect you know, family and what you want to do. Generally in the evening we'd go for a walk and we're walking and praying and, and talking about this. And finally got down one night and I said, you know, I feel like I can always be a lawyer, but I'll get one chance to be a pilot. So I'll go for the pilot. So that was it. If we could just take a step back, because you made some pretty important decisions when you were in college. You got married to Diane, who's still by your side today, and then you made the call to join the Air Force. It takes a pretty mature man to do that in college. Can you share with us maybe a time or a defining moment that matured you to make such a decision? I was 18, and I, I walked and did things that I should not have been doing. One night I was walking home from a friend's house, and the church was always open, so about midnight I went into the church and there was a little neon cross up front and a picture of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane praying. That was all that was lit up. I went down front and was praying, and I said, basically prayer was, you know, everything is going so perfect. I'm friends with lots of people. I'm dating who I want to date. I have an offer for a scholarship, a track in, in college, and everything's great, but I feel terrible. And there's something more, something missing, and... I, I pleaded like that and got up and left. Well, now the next two years were terrible because now the Lord begins to pull me out of what I was focused on to get me focused. And, and those two years were very defining years. And out of that came some real major changes. And one of the biggest ones that helped me was somewhere, I don't know how I picked this up, Grace, but I determined that mentors were very valuable and not so much mentors to talk to, but mentors to watch. And one of the requests I had when I looked at these people that their family was in order. Their kids were mimicking the type of lifestyle. So I began to focus on 
what did those type of people do? What were they doing? Well, they were in church. And that was a common theme. And I looked at all those uncles and aunts I had, and the same common thread was through. The ones that were doing well with their family had a church. It wasn't a certain denomination either. It was a fellowship in a church. And so I thought, you know what? I'm, that's simple to follow, so I just checked that off. And that really was a, a real defining moment. So after college, Ken decided to join the Air Force. He went overseas during the last part of the Vietnam War. But after six and a half years in public service, he came back to the U.S. wanting a change. Uh, they rotated us back after the war, back to Mississippi. I was there a year, and then I just began to realize that I was going to do something different. I did this projection. I looked ahead at some of the people in front of me, and I looked at where I would be, and I looked at their jobs, and I decided I didn't want that job. I didn't want that job. So for about six months prior, we were thinking about it and preparing. So together, we would do applications to all the airlines. It was in 76. By that time, you had to use a typewriter, and you had to rotate the paper to get them in the squares and all that. It was very difficult, actually, and we would spend a lot of hours doing that, and everything was no. So the hiring stopped. And plus, we were still in kind of a recession from the oil when the oil prices shot up after the 73 Israeli uh, Air War. And that impacted airlines Plus, airlines were a... highly regulated at that time, so there wasn't much expansion. And then so the only place to come back said, we are not hiring, but we are hiring if you're willing to go to Saudi Arabia. Oh, that makes sense, because Saudi had all the oil. Well, yeah, it was. So anyway, they offered me a first officer position in 707. And Diane and I again talked about that. About this time, I got accepted to Kansas Air National Guard to fly F-105s. And so it was, again, back to one of those things. And once again, it come down to, you know, this is the chance of a lifetime, go to Saudi Arabia and live and fly big airplanes. And I can come back and probably get in the guard again if I try hard. So that's how Ken shifted from flying planes for the public sector to flying planes for the commercial industry. Ken arrived in Saudi Arabia during Hajj when Muslims make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And although he said he had the thought of going back home once he stepped into the crowded, old terminal, he learned quite quickly how the expat community worked there. He, Diane, and their three kids enjoyed diving, traveling, and doing life in the Middle East. He loved living in Saudi Arabia. For reasons of education of our son, which schooling stopped at the eighth grade, and airlines we're beginning to hire because of deregulation and this type of thing. We decided two years of time to go back. Back in the U.S., Ken paid for his own courses at United Training Center to be captain. He still didn't know where his next job would be. But on his last day of class, he got a pleasant surprise. It was actually miraculous. I'd gone to train at United. I was getting ready to leave that day. I had my books, United Books. Oh, I thought, oh my gosh, i got to turn them in. So I went back. They said, no, no, those are yours. You paid for them. But by the way, Jack Ason, who's the head of the training firm, would like to talk to you. And he would like to talk to you about a job. Would you like to work at Southwest? And I said, well, sure, I'd like to. I didn't have a suit, so I went downtown Denver and bought a suit. Got it tailored right quick. The next morning, I got on the plane. I went in and talked to Don Ogden for literally about 10 minutes. And then he asked me these questions, looked at my application, and he said, son, you got a job. Ken's opportunity came by being at the right place at the right time. He says he was hired because Southwest knew deregulation was coming to the U.S. in 1978. So Ken joined Southwest as part of its expansion from just seven to 10 aircraft. On top of that, 
Ken learned some valuable lessons under the leadership of the founder, Herb Kelleher. He's a very impactful individual. One of the first private conversations I had with him, we were talking, he said, you know what the number one thing you have to do to be successful? So you got to be an optimist. If you're not an optimist, and any in the airline business, if you don't like people, and if you don't like challenges, please get out of the aviation business. You know, he was really blunt, but he was, it was true. And our manual instruction on how to behave was like paper thin. It was basically do the right thing and trust your people. And he did. We did the right thing, and he trusted people. And, you know, it proved out. One thing I would back up and say about Southwest and, what, and about Herb Kelleher, what you hear about them is really not true. It's better. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's the only way I can define it. It's actually better. At Southwest, Ken got the opportunity to advance in his career. He started as first officer, moved up to be captain after a couple years, and when he wanted to get into the business side of things, he got to be an instructor that trained pilots how to fly and check their quality of flying. Then he continued to shift into different roles within the business and get more senior roles as he grew and the business grew. By 1999, he was chief pilot at the airline, and in 2001, he was the director of flight operations. This all happened in a span of 25 years and at a time when the airline had grown to 450 planes. But when Ken was in his mid-50s, he was willing to take a risk to have a career change. And when I asked him why he was willing to make a change when everything was going well and retirement was just around the corner at Southwest, this is what he said. Well, two things. One's back to the first question you asked early on, that what were you like growing up? I was kind of pushing the edges a lot. But the other was I had a good example. I had uh, my grandparents. They were farmers with a few acres in central Kansas farming. And at 62, they went in massive debt. And they bought a large ranch, 5,000 acres, and and I think cattle and everything with it. It was a whole deal. And uh, moved away from their, their place they'd lived for all their life. And they moved about 200 miles and um, started ranching. And that, at 62, they went in this debt and took this chance. And 63, they had a bumper wheat crop, bumper cattle crop, high prices, and they paid everything off. By 64, they're buying a new Pontiac every three years, wearing a Stetson hat, and, and doing life different, you know. And I saw that hey, this guy took a chance, and he's willing to at 62. And most people are thinking about how to, how to quit working. So it was a blend of Ken's aptitude of taking on a new adventure and how he looked up to his grandparents that gave him the push to get out of his comfort zone. After the break, you'll hear what convinced Ken to join a startup airline and what happened when oil prices reached record highs. Hey guys, I have Peter Irvine here with me. He's brought Gloria Jean's coffee to Australia and he's here today to share a bit of insight on his first book called Win in Business. Peter, thanks for joining me to share about your book. Great to be here, Grace. From having experience in advertising to business franchising, what happened that made you want to write this book? It started because I was speaking to a lot of business groups, a lot of companies, uh, church business groups, and people were asking for copies of the notes. So my wife said, why don't you write a book? So you wrote this book back in 2007. 
Could you tell us what was going on at Gloria Jean's Coffee then? We would have had about 240 stores about that time. Wow. Well, we certainly were in a growth phase and there were a lot of lessons to be learned. So what's one practical lesson that's in this book that you feel can be relevant to those who care about faith and career? Well, it certainly came in uh, a few times in the book, but in the chapter on family was uh, we've been sold the lie that family and business don't mix. But if one's going badly, it affects the other one. So if it's bad, going badly at home, you take it to work, it affects your staff and customers. And if it's going bad at work and you bring it home, it will start to affect your relationship at home. Thanks for sharing that, Peter. That's really awesome how you brought in that faith element to look at how you can win in business and also in your family. If you'd like to read more, Peter's book, Win in Business, can be purchased online. You might also want to look out for his story on Faith Collides. Peter opens up on highs and lows of work and in ministry. You won't want to miss. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard why Ken wanted to take a chance to do something different. And now we'll hear what actually convinced him to leave Southwest in 2004. In 2003, I was setting my desk and the phone rings. And I answer, and this guy identifies himself, gives his name, and he said that they're starting an airline. Uh, I was included in a book they wrote about Southwest in a couple of places, and they had saw in there two stories about me. And would I be interested? And I said, no. I'm very happy where I am. I like this airline, and no, I'm not, no, I'm not interested. A week later, they called me back. He asked, again, tried to persuade me, and I said, I'm, I'm really quite happy. I won't do it. Well, then they, he called back again and said, can I come fly down, meet with you, show you the business plan, and explain everything, and talk? And he said, would you do one thing? Would you come up and meet with the investors that we've lined up to put money in if we get a, a president COO? I said, well, sure, I'll do that. So I went up, and what it was was the seven investors we were going to make a presentation to them about the potential airline and answer questions. To me, it was I was going to interview them. I mean, and I did. I mean, it was both ways because if they didn't meet my qualifications, I wasn't going to go. So we did. We made the presentation, and the investors were outstanding. The opportunity at Skybus came knocking on Ken's door. He was told that if he joined as the COO and president, investors would put in $7 million in seed money to get a team together and secure more funding. It was a whole new adventure. So Ken went through the business plan for the new airline, met the investors, agreed the terms that were good for him and his family. But he was still leaving a comfortable job and airline. So Ken again had to make a decision for his career, now at 56 years old a time when most people are thinking about retirement. But Diane and I, again, did a pro-con list, and we brought in what we call our kitchen cabinet. Our kitchen cabinet consists of our son and his wife, our daughter and her husband, and other daughter and her husband. So we have eight people that sit together, and we do major decisions, Diane and I do. We involve them, and they're really confidential. They don't talk. They keep it quiet, and... Um, they make discussions and they pray. We want our whole family to do that because the proverb says there's wisdom and counsel. So you get counsel you can trust and confident, and it has your best interest at mind. 
And it's amazing how wise you become when you get that type of help. Wow. It's amazing to me how you involve your family in these decisions. And they supported you to launch a new airline. What was it like the first day at Skybus? Well, first, I remember thinking, now what? What do we, you know? And it's well, once you realize you pull out, and the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration Agency, uh, requires so much. And one of us go down through that list and begin to, and that's massive. And somebody told me when once you get twenty two thousand questions answered, you're ready to go. But I don't know. I didn't take time to count them. So we started in, and it, it involved going to Washington D.C. We had to prove our business plan to the FAA. They had to go through and look at it stamp off but the real crucial one was we finally got our team ready about 16 months later in the fall of 2005 early fall so uh, like three of us we went to new york to raise the money and but raising the 80 million was quite difficult that took from september for we finally signed the documents in march and so we got to live in new york city we had a team at Morgan Stanley that would not give us up on us, and we would not give up on them. And no matter what, we would go to interviews, and sometimes we got the most the rudest response, and sometimes they would say, you got the money, you know, and, and on Friday and take it back on Monday. Six months after March, we raised another $80 million. So we had $160 million once we before we started flying. And we actually started flying in spring of 2007. So you got the money ready regulators to sign off on the documents. What was it like when you guys started flying? Well, the airline was an unbelievable success in the sense of the passenger number. They had, we had a program that the first 10 tickets would go for $10. And literally the first time we opened up, there's so many calls, it shut down our booking system. So we immediately had to make a more robust system. And things were going really, really well. But as we didn't know it actually, factually at the time, but the recession began to hit in Ohio around November of 2007. And things began to get tougher and went through a very bad winter too, uh, 17 days of snow and that type of thing. And so it began to, the, the recession was beginning to come. And so with a credit card company, which I'm really going to get technical here on you for just a minute, but when you sell tickets, the air, a credit card company does not let you have the money until they fly. So unless you're an established carrier with a good credit rating, then you can get it. With us, they would do a holdback, so they would keep the money. When things started going bad, they realized they saw the recession, they saw some things happening in the economics. They took away the, they went to 100% holdback. Okay, so when the credit companies pulled back, Skybus lost its flow of capital. What was happening with oil? Oil was going from about $50 to 60 when we started the airline. And we did stress test up to $90. And we proved we could do it for 90 Well, we got to prove that stress test, by the way. We could make money at $96. But we couldn't make money at 127 137 147 And it just kept going up. No airline can make money at that price. And we actually had been profitable the month of March of 2008. And so what happened was when the fuel went, I think it was above 127, we looked at the numbers and they said, you know what? This isn't going to work. We have $18 million left. That's what we'd forecast. So we were close to our goal. 
But our goal was to never have that much of fuel cost. So the board, we met, and they said, we need 35 more million. And um, so we went to raising money that week. We raised 22, but not enough. So on Friday, the board said, close it down. So we shut it down with $18 million in the bank. That was on a Friday, and that was it. Oh, wow. What was going on in your mind? We were just doing everything we can to save the airline. We had 11 airplanes at the time. We had a good number of employees and good good people, and all of a sudden, they were going to be out of a job. You know, a lot of people, that's their livelihood. They need that paycheck, and all of a sudden, you're taken away, and you're messing up people's traveling plans, too. So there's a lot of human factors, and that's what the biggest thing is, the humans you're going to affect. Like, I was in a situation where it wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to go hungry. You know, I, I'd been worked with the company for a long time, Diane and I'd been frugally minded and budget minded. So we were not sitting on the edge, but a lot of people are sitting on the edge. And so that's what bothers you the most. But, but in looking back at this from a business perspective, what was your, th- your thoughts on it? Well, the biggest thought I thought was, I never want to not have equity. And it's hard to have a new company and have equity because the other lines just pull off their equity or their lines of credit because they've been in business a while. They could mortgage more airplanes. They could do this. We didn't have that flexibility. We did. We had no equity. And so that yeah, consequently that, that doesn't work. And it was not helpful that the, the year you started was 2007 and in 2008, it was the global financial crisis. Matter of fact, well, one of the uh, board members talked to me afterwards and said, it's a good thing we didn't raise the $35 million because we would have gone through that because by, two, by the fall of 2008, it was all over with. You would have lost yeah. more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, our responsibility is to follow what's good business sense. And anyway, we, they took a vote with that, and, and they closed it. Why do you think you were able to move on so quickly? and that you didn't let that situation get the best of you? I would say that all my, my upbringing, you're all part of that. It's all part of your faith, your family, your heritage. It's all part of how you handle situations. And a situation, you know, if you've done the best you possibly can do, you've done everything and you haven't been lazy about it and worked hard at it, and situation comes along. Now, if we'd found a lot of our failure, it would have been probably disappointing. But trying to overcome that price of the economy that's going into a spiral. I mean, I think that year three or four other airlines went broke too. I believe Frontier being one of them. I can't remember the others, but it had to close down just because they couldn't do that. So you're in a situation now you do the best you can to recover and hopefully get other people jobs. And they did. We followed up a lot of them. A lot of them got jobs pretty quick. Some had to go overseas like myself. There was a lot at stake when the board made the decision to shut down the airline. Many people's lives were affected, and that concerned Ken the most. But Ken also had the responsibility to shut down the airline and figure out what would be next for him. Now I begin to look at what you got to go through to shut down because it takes a while to shut an airline down. And on Monday, while we're doing that, I get a call, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, somebody calls wants to know if I would be interested in... Uh, a job and for long the next week I had about six opportunities to go to work and so Diane and I were back in the decision-making process again of a list of six companies and pros and cons 
of what to do, and and some I knew I didn't even want to do for sure, but some we looked at and interviewed with, and and then in a few weeks uh, we'd pretty well made a decision. And what was your decision? Uh, we narrowed it down to two, and then we decided to fly Dubai. Fly Dubai was a new airline in Dubai in a country called the United Arab Emirates. It's a country in the Middle East aiming to diversify its oil wealth into other industries like aviation. So in 2008, the ruler there known as the Sheikh released capital to hire key people like Ken as COO to establish the new airline. So at 61 years old, Ken and Diane were off on their third adventure overseas. By the time I got here uh, in the 1st of July, I got here one day, and the next day we flew to London to Farnborough Air Show and, and announced the order of 50 aircraft. Uh, from closing down one in April to open one up in July at Farnborough Air Show, was quite a, that's quite a roller coaster. And uh, it was, that was a good time, and we back, come back and just started working. And uh, we had to go through the same certification process, manuals and all this, test flying. You know, it's seven-day weeks and 12-hour days to get an airline going, and we flew one June, first trip to Beirut, the second day to Amman, Jordan, and um, ended up growing the airline real fast, and uh, the airline was, my records, best I can understand, we were the fastest-growing startup ever, and we grew to 40 airplanes just pretty fast. Ken worked hard to start up and run the new operations at Fly Dubai. He got to be part of something new and see an airline succeed. Things couldn't have been better. Until one day on a family trip to Europe, he realized something wasn't right with his health. We were in Rome on Christmas Eve. And we were walking around seeing all the sights. That night I had a pain in my side that was just fierce. And I soon learned that the only thing I could really eat was oranges and salads. And after Christmas Eve in the morning, I got up, went to shave, and I noticed that my chest was yellow, uh, jaundice, I thought. I pushed, I could tell, and I said, well, I'm going to Dubai in two days. I need to probably take a look at this. We stop again, and Diane comes up to me and said, look up, look at me, and look up in the air. I did, and she had noticed that my whites of my eyes were yellow in the, in the rest stop. And then our daughter was the nurse, and she was there, and she brought her over there, and they said, yeah, your eyes are jaundiced, too. You're turning yellow. So we called Diane's nephew. He's a doctor in Dallas. He kind of explained, he said, sound like you got a gallbladder, but you ought to come home quickly for a test. So in, in about eight hours, I was on a, on a flight to, to Dallas, out of Rome. Next morning, I went in for a check, and they did a CT scan. Interesting thing on the CT scan, I'm waiting. The technicians had a problem. And so I'm waiting there, and a, a vision comes to me. And a vision comes that says, really, I could go in detail, but I won't. It's just, and out of that vision, I am with you. That was really powerful. I am with you. Didn't say what he's with me with, I mean, what for, but I'm with you. Didn't say I'm going to live, going to die. Just, I'm with you. When we got finished, I went back home. There wasn't any food in the house because everybody's gone, so I was going to have to go buy some oranges and a salad. And the phone rings. That is my nephew, the doctor. And he said, family home yet? I said, no, no, they're not here. You know, and he said, and he said, well, I need to talk to you, but I need somebody there. I said, it's okay. Well, I hate to have you alone. I said, well, I'm alone. I'm okay. 
So they say, well, you have advanced cancer. You have tumors the size of your fist, one, and the size of a lady's fist, and others. The tumor is close your bile duct off. So we got to go down your throat and open your bile duct up. That's got to be first so you can start eating right. And he said, you need to, um, we need other tests. And we don't know, we think it's lymphoma or sarcoma. We don't know. So I said, okay. I left, go to the grocery store, and I walked in the produce department. And the, the guy was there and he said, hey, good evening, how are you doing? I said, no, I'm doing fantastic, how are you? And then I realized, wait a second, I just been told I have cancer, advanced stages, I'm doing fantastic, how are you? And I realized, you know, the Lord really was. And you know that, still there today. It's still there. What was still there? I'm with you. I'm with you. So all of a sudden, Ken's life changed. Yet his faith gave him this peace that surpassed understanding. He was 64 years old when he was diagnosed with advanced stages of lymphoma and prostate cancer. But instead of retiring or taking on a sabbatical, he decided to keep working. Well, it seemed like the thing to do. You know, there's a lot of things to be taken care of, and I could do those remotely. With with email itself, a lot of times you can answer questions, and uh, you can still do budgets. You can still respond and meet with people, make sure things go on. But the, what helped me best is the team I had. The team literally it proves that I had a great team. I wasn't there for 13 months, and they did great. And that's a real testimony to me itself. Plus, the hospital encouraged you to, you know, diet right, exercise, keep doing what you can do. And I felt encouraged to do that. But also, I think one of the things that made it easy was uh, Diane was such a support during the whole thing. It was probably tougher on her than me. What do you think made it the toughest? Uh, there were a lot of ups and downs. You know, I ended up getting West Nile virus. Basically, didn't know who I was for seven days. They thought I might not, not come out of it. I couldn't even remember my name. And then we ended up with a brain bleed and um, pushed my brain over. I had to have brain surgery. And, you know, just one thing after another. But the Lord was there all the time. And in the hospital room, I was led to walk. Even with the chemical tree, I'd walk three miles a day. But those times, I'd use that time to pray and, and um, realize how, how really thankful I really was. It seemed like what you went through, you could have passed at any moment of your life. But he was with me. So So you had no fear? No, I did not. I did not. But would I like to live and complete some things? Yes, I would. But fear of dying is not one of my concerns. Dying is not one of his concerns. Ken continued to fight cancer until he reached remission while working at Fly Dubai. He intended to work in Dubai for three years, but stayed there for 11. In 2018, he and Diane moved back to the U.S. to be closer to their nine grandkids. And did you ever imagine that you were going to be an aviation executive? No. Yeah, you just knew you wanted to be a pilot when you were eight. Yeah, but the only really goal I had in my life was to be a good grandfather. I said that when I was 19. My goal was to be a good grandfather. But I realized to be a good grandfather, too, you have to be a good husband, you know. And you have to be a good father. And you, you have to strive. It doesn't mean I am good. It means I try to be good, you know. If there's just one thing to take away from Ken's roller coaster career, it's that he really thought through every decision and each opportunity, good or bad. When Ken had to decide between law or aviation after college, 
He factored in what he loved and had the aptitude for. When he decided to go back to the U.S. after flying in Saudi Arabia and then got the offer to work for Southwest, he had considered the global landscape, how the aviation industry was deregulating, and the impact of oil prices on the industry. Finally, when Ken decided to leave Southwest after 25 years to start a new airline, and then when that didn't work out, to then move to Dubai to start Fly Dubai, he brought in his family and sought counsel from the kitchen cabinet. The thing is, Ken learned to have a methodical approach in decision-making, and this came during a defining moment in his faith as a teenager, which taught him to watch and observe mentors. I'll leave you today with this thought. Do you have any mentors? And what do you see in their lives that you think works or might make sense to apply to your own? Thank you for listening to this first episode of Faith Collides. This is Grace Wong, and I hope to keep bringing you stories that can revive your work week. Have a blessed one.